Welcome to the study of the book of Revelation, taught by Michael Fitzgerald, senior pastor of Clifford Baptist Church. These lessons come from a Wednesday night study of the book, so the format is more of a classroom setting. Included in this Revelation series are written study notes, which can be accessed with each lesson in the series. We are working through the book of Revelation and of course, this is an amazing Word of God. The more I study it, the more I am amazed by it, given by God Almighty to the Apostle John. And of course, he is in a prison sentence on the island of Patmos. He is in exile there, placed there by the Roman government because of his preaching and witnessing for the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's amazing to me that the Roman government put John on the island of Patmos in order to silence him, and yet God gave him a letter that has led the church for thousands of years and also has led many to the Lord Jesus over those years. Uh, of course, most of the disciples died an early death. If you remember, uh, John's brother James died very early in his life. However, James was the one disciple that was permitted to live a very, very long life. John died an old man. But as we look at the book of the Revelation that God dictated to him and he wrote faithfully, it is broken into three sections. And I know I've told you this so many times, but I want to hammer this in because it is so important. The three sections of the book of Revelation. Chapter 1, is a picture of the risen Lord Jesus Christ, John's vision of Jesus. Chapters 2 and 3 are seven letters to the seven churches of Asia Minor, and those seven letters encompass all of God's Word to those churches in that day, but also I believe that they inform and direct and guide the churches of our day. And then beginning with chapter 4 to the end of the book, we see the third division, which is God's prophecy of how he is going to usher out the age of the world and usher in the consummated kingdom of God. Now, in this prophecy section, which begins with chapter 4, we have already studied the seven-year period of the Great Tribulation. And, of course, you know that this is a future day. We are not going through the Great Tribulation. It is ahead of us. We don't know exactly when it will happen. However, I do believe that the time is getting very close. As we see God's Word fulfilled, 95 or more percent of the prophecy of the Bible is already fulfilled. Very little is left to be fulfilled. I believe that the day is getting close where the church will be raptured away. You and I will be extracted from this world. And the Great Tribulation will begin after that point. As we've studied the book of the Revelation and we see the Great Tribulation taking place, we've looked at the seven broken seals of the scroll of God, which he gave to the hand of Jesus. Jesus unrolls that scroll with the breaking of every seal is also the bringing of a Great Tribulation. At the breaking of the seventh seal, we see seven trumpet judgments. As the seventh trumpet sounds, we see seven bowl or vile judgments, bowls of wrath poured out against sin in this world. God is pouring his wrath upon hard-hearted sinners and those who curse his name. He is finally equaling the books of all the wickedness and unrighteousness that has taken place in this old world. Now, we've studied the fall 
of a false church that develops during the days of the Great Tribulation. It has the seal of approval of the Antichrist. However, after the Antichrist uses the false church to accomplish his goals, he completely destroys it and begins directing the world to worship him as God. So a false church comes and goes. We also see the fall of the political empire then of the Antichrist in chapters 17 and 18 as we draw toward the end of the Great Tribulation. And then God orchestrates this old world falling apart. We see it in nature, in finances, in political power. Everything is falling. Everything is beginning to disintegrate Rolling toward destruction. That's the word you're looking for on your sheet, the word destruction. However, while the world is shaken and destroyed, the kingdom of God is being perfectly established. That's the word established. Out with the old world, stained with sin and rebellion and wickedness, in with the new creation of God, washed in forgiveness and given eternal life. Now, the last... Revelation study that we did, we opened chapter 19. And in that chapter, we see two suppers. The supper that we studied last week is the supper of joy. And tonight, we're going to study a supper of judgment. In verses 1 through 10 of chapter 19, it describes the marriage supper of the groom, Jesus Christ, to his perfect bride, who is the church. He is going to marry us in an eternal fashion, and we will be his bride for all eternity. Remember, we are indeed a part of this great celebration. And, of course, in these days, I love a fancy wedding, and Derek and Jenny have one coming up very soon. And I love a fancy wedding, and and I know all the planning is hard, but it brings a beautiful day, and sometimes those weddings have great food and and all the, the great sights that we see. But believe me, in comparison to the wedding and the supper of joy that we see in Revelation 19, we ain't seen nothing yet in comparison to what that is going to be. It's going to be magnificent. But then in chapter 19, we see the description of another supper, a supper of judgment that takes place when the battle of Armageddon is over. Satan and the false prophet and the Antichrist, if you remember, we have called them the unholy trinity. There is a holy trinity of Father, Son, Holy Spirit, but there is also in the days of the Great Tribulation an unholy trinity of Satan, the false prophet, and the Antichrist. And these three, Satan, the false prophet who is the spokesman for the Antichrist, and the Antichrist himself inflame the nations of the world to gather together in a situation of war. And they are warring against God, and the the way that they carry out the war against God is to war against God's people, Israel. And they meet in the valley of Armageddon, which is in the Holy Land, Uh, And they're warring against God by trying to take the lives of God's people, Israel. As we see the description of Armageddon, I believe that there are hundreds of millions of soldiers that are coming to slaughter God's chosen people in that valley. And we see the word Armageddon in chapter 16 of Revelation, verse 16, but we see the battle of Armageddon played out in chapter 19. 
So all of these nations gather at this central point of the battle at Armageddon, and Revelation 19, verses 11 through 21, tell us what happens. So turn your Bible there, Revelation chapter 19, go to verse 11, and we will read to the end of the chapter tonight. Hear these words from God's Word. Revelation 19, beginning with verse 11. John says, And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And he that sat upon him was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he doth judge and make war. His eyes were as a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. And he had a name written, that no man knew but he himself. And he was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, and out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword, and with it he should smite the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron." And he treadeth the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he hath on his vesture and on his thigh a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. And I saw an angel standing in the sun. And he cried with a loud voice, saying to all the fowls that fly in the midst of heaven, Come and gather yourselves together unto the supper of the great God that ye may eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of captains and the flesh of mighty men and the flesh of horses and of them that sit on them and the flesh of all men, both free and bond, both small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against him that sat on the horse and against his army. And the beast was taken and with him the false prophet that wrought miracles before him, with which he deceived them that had received the mark of the beast and them that worshipped his image. These both were cast alive into a lake of the fire burning with brimstone. And the remnant were slain with the sword of him that sat upon the horse, which sword proceeded out of his mouth, and all the fowls were filled with their flesh. May God add his blessing to the reading of this portion of his word. Now, as we think about this supper of judgment, Satan has rallied all of the nations of the world together in one huge army, people coming from Russia, coming from the Arab Confederation, coming from the Chinese continent, coming from the Western world, all of them gathering in this huge theater of war called Armageddon. And here's the picture as I see it. All of these soldiers are converging in this one place in the Holy Land, and they are armed, they are ready for murder, that's why they're there, and they're in the midst of gathering together. They're going to look upward, and the sky is going to open and revealed from heaven will be the Son of God, Jesus Christ. He is sitting on a white horse. He is the general of all the armies of heaven. 
Now, more than a couple millennia before, the Gospels, as they are written, tell us that Jesus is going to come to Jerusalem, and he came riding on a lowly donkey. You remember that. There's a prophecy, and it is in the book of Zechariah in the Old Testament, chapter 9, verse 9, that tells us long before Jesus did come to Jerusalem on the back of a donkey that it was going to happen. It was a prophecy that indeed was fulfilled. Why did Jesus come to Jerusalem at that particular time? He came to die on a cross. It was his final trip into the city. Why did he come on a beast of burden? The beast of burden symbolizes carrying a load. Jesus riding that donkey symbolizes that he was willing to carry the entire load and responsibility of sin to the old rugged cross. He comes riding on a donkey as a symbol that he is also bearing a burden for the world, taking the punishment of sin upon himself on the old rugged cross. So the Gospels tell us that Jesus comes to Jerusalem to make peace possible in our relationship with God. But one of the things that I want to call your attention to is there are some words from Jesus that while he does bring peace to the world, yet he has another word to say about that. And if you want to turn with me, go with me to the Gospel of Matthew. Keep your thumb in Revelation. Go to Matthew chapter 10. Matthew chapter 10, verse 34. Matthew chapter 10, verse 34. Listen to these words that Jesus speaks. He says, Think not that I am come to send peace on earth. I came not to send peace, but a sword. For I am come to set a man at variance against his father, and the daughter against her mother, and the daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's foes shall be they of his own household. He that loveth father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he that loveth son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he that taketh not his cross and followeth after me is not worthy of me. He that findeth his life shall lose it. And he that loseth his life for my sake shall find it. What is Jesus saying there? Indeed, Jesus does come to bring peace to the world. He brings peace to each one who receives him individually. As Paul opens his letters uh, to the churches and the individuals to whom he writes in the New Testament, he always starts his letters with grace and peace. But remember this, you can never have peace until you first have grace. You can never have peace until Jesus Christ and his grace has touched your heart in salvation. So individually, Jesus came to this world to bring peace to every person. However, when there is a mixture of saved and unsaved people in the world, as Jesus is referring here, when there's a mixture of saved and unsaved people in a family, when one finds Jesus Christ and the others have not, it will put a wedge in families. It will bring a wedge to the world. So we find peace individually, but when the saved individual goes into the world that is not saved, then he or she will not find peace. In the days of the Great, tribula- uh, the great Tribulation, they will very likely find death. 
So the peace of Jesus does come to us individually, but when we go out into an unsaved world, it can bring variance and trouble. There will be conflict. What we see at Armageddon is the unsaved raising their fists to the one who wanted to bring peace to the world. And so the ungodly world is fighting against the godly through Jesus Christ. However, without question, Jesus is going to reign supreme in this battle. Uh, Revelation 19 verse 11 says he comes back to make war against all who cursed him, who blasphemed him, who belittled him. So he did come to bring peace, but now he's coming to bring judgment to the rejectors, to the ones who turned him away. So as the Antichrist and several hundred million soldiers look to the sky, they are going to see the brightness of his eyes. That's on your sheet. They will see his eyes burning as fire, piercing through their very souls, seeing all the sin and all the unrighteousness in their lives. They will also see him wearing multiple crowns of victory. They will see his true name as the Son of God. I want to take you back to the names that we see here. In verse 11, he is called faithful and true. In verse 13, he is called the Word of God. In verse 16, he is called the King of kings and Lord of lords. However, there is also, if you'll notice at the end of verse 12, the last part of that verse says, he had a name written that no man knew but he himself. So Jesus is a Savior of many names, some of them so glorious that I don't think we know them on this side of eternity. But we see the title that runs across his thigh as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Notice also in chapter 19, verse 13, that he has a robe that is covered in blood. Whose blood? Whose blood covers the robe of Jesus at this point? It's not his blood this time. He did shed his own blood. He was covered in his own blood on the old rugged cross, but not this time. This blood on his robe, he is treading the winepress of God's wrath against sin. Throughout the tribulation years, he is cleaning house. This is the blood of the unforgiven. This is the blood of the wicked. This is the blood of the rejecter. This is the blood of the cursor. What we see in Revelation 19 is the final installment, Jesus ridding his creation of sin. He is cleaning house. And so when these hundreds of millions of earthly soldiers look at the sky, they're going to cringe with fear because they are going to see the general of heaven, and he means business. I remember years ago, I preached a sermon called, Was Jesus a Wimp? And the answer to that sermon and the answer to that question is absolutely not. The Son of God, he was a man. Now it says that he was meek. That did not make him a wimp. Meekness is a quality that every man and woman should seek. That means complete surrender to the will of God. You are more of the man or woman that God wants you to be when you're meek before his will. 
So meekness is not weakness. When Jesus walked the soil of this earth, he was a meek man, but he was not a weak man. When the soldiers of the earth in the great tribulation see him on this white horse, he is anything but a wimp. He is the son of God. I want you to notice who is behind the great general. The Bible tells us that all the armies, notice that that is in plural, all the armies of heaven are there. They are in different regiments. That's why it's in plural. The armies of heaven are composed of the Old Testament believers and patriarchs, those who lived on this earth before Jesus Christ was born in the manger. Remember that any life has to be based in faith. So these are the faithful of the Old Testament days, one regiment. Another regiment is the church, the people of God who served Jesus Christ through the ministry and the outreach arm of the church over the years. That's another regiment. Another regiment of the army is the great tribulation saints, those who came to Jesus in salvation after the church was raptured off of the world. So the great tribulation saints, those who were martyred for their faith, that's another regiment of the army of Jesus Christ. And then all the angels of heaven are a part of the army of the Lord. So while we might have hundreds of millions of human soldiers standing on the earth, they are awesomely outnumbered by the armies of heaven. There is no way they can win this battle. As believers, I want you to bear in mind tonight, you and I are going to be in that army. You and I are going to see this tremendous, awesome sight. We can't even get it in our minds it's so awesome. But we're going to be not only seeing it, but we're going to be in it. This is a picture painted right now that you and I will be in one day. I pray that you'll think, you know, I remember, I remember, I remember, we, we learned about that on a Wednesday night. Here I am. But I remember learning about that on a Wednesday night study. Our leader, our general, our Lord has a sharp sword that's on your sheet, coming out of his mouth. That's a rather odd picture, but it simply means that Jesus' principal weapon in dealing with sin is his word. The sword from his mouth symbolizes his word, and he is ready for battle. And as he rides forth, followed by the armies of heaven, a banner stretches from his shoulder down his chest and across his thigh. And on that banner is emblazoned for all the world, for all of heaven to see, to see King of kings and Lord of lords. So this is God's day. This is God's battle. This is God's repayment. And nothing in the universe is going to stop it from happening now. Now I want you to get this. As the false prophet... And the Antichrist and several hundred million soldiers look upward at this awesome scene from heaven as they see the brightness of Jesus on the white horse and the armies behind him. Then the sky begins to darken. The picture begins to gray out. The shining scene begins to dim. Why? Because birds are swarming into the valley of Armageddon by the billion. They're swarming into the valley. An angel standing in the sun calls all of the birds to the earth in this valley because God is going to provide them a supper. 
a supper of judgment. They're going to pick at and eat the dead flesh of kings and captains and soldiers and their horses when Jesus is done with this battle. So the day is lit by Jesus' presence, but there is a gray out as billions of birds are coming to the battleground of Armageddon, circling overhead. Now the Antichrist, the son of Satan, tries vainly to rally all of his troops. He announces, we came to make war, and now we are forced to carry through. And at this point, the Antichrist sees the robe of blood. He sees the crowns of victory. He sees the banner of Jesus' name. He sees the eyes of fire in the Lord, and the Antichrist knows that it is way too late for a treaty, way too late for retreat, way too late for a ceasefire or a truce. So the only thing that he has left to do is to rally his troops to battle. And Jesus immediately takes the Antichrist as a prisoner of war, and he also takes as a captive the false prophet. Now look what happens to these two servants of Satan in chapter 19, verse 20. Look at verse 20. And the beast was taken, and with him the false prophet that wrought miracles before him, with which he deceived them that it received the mark of the beast, and them that worshipped his image. These both were cast alive into a lake of fire burning with brimstone. These two are cast directly into hell itself. They have the unique honor and damnation of being the very first cast into the eternal fire and punishment of hell. You see, up to this point, for all unbelievers, I believe that the moment you or I or an unbeliever closes our eyes in death, we know exactly in that split second, we know exactly our eternal destination. We don't go to this misty gray area and think, okay, I might have a chance. I don't know. I've got a few millennia to, to make a decision, and I don't know which way I'm going to go. That's not the truth. When a person closes his or her eyes in death, they're going to know their eternal destination. Now, I believe that when a lost person closes their eyes in death, they are held in a terrible place called Hades. The Old Testament calls it Sheol, and it's hell-like. It's bad, but it's going to get worse. Not one soul has entered hell yet. Hell has not been entered yet. The first ones to enter hell, according to Revelation 19, are the Antichrist and the false prophet. But not one has been cast into the lake of fire yet. Those who are lost are in that abode of Hades or Sheol, and they know they are bound for hell. There's no question that they're bound for eternity in hell. I also believe heaven is likewise. The new heaven and the new earth has not been revealed yet. However, when a saved person closes his or her eyes in death, What's, what did Jesus say to the thief on the cross who recognized him? Today you will be with me in paradise. So it is a lovely place. It's a wonderful place. It's a place of peace. It's a place of joy. But it's not heaven in its full culmination in Revelation yet. Heaven is coming. 
The joy that is complete and eternal is coming. So hell in Revelation 19 is brand new. And the Antichrist and the false prophet are its first residents. Are they burnt up and gone? You know, a lot of people who believe in hell say, well, I do believe hell, but I believe that you're incinerated, you're gone, and you are no more, and there's no more suffering. Not according to Revelation. If you would like to turn with me, look ahead to Revelation chapter 20, verse 10. What you're going to see is after the thousand-year millennium reign of Jesus, that's when Satan will be cast into hell. So a thousand years at least later after the Antichrist and the false prophet are cast into hell, and the devil that deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are. Now that's a thousand years at least later after the thousand-year reign of Jesus. So if you'll notice, the Antichrist and the false prophet are still there and forever, eternally will be. Hell is a place of eternity, as is heaven. Now, I don't want you to, anyone to, to mislead our young people or anyone within our congregation to say that the lost are going to vanish and vaporize away. That is not what the Bible says. Hell is eternal. Well, let's get back to Armageddon in chapter 19. When Jesus captures the Antichrist, all these armies of the earth, from all the points of the earth, coming under the leadership of the Antichrist, now the Antichrist is gone. The armies have lost their leader. And so fear and chaos set in to these earthly armies. But before these millions of troops can run and hide, Jesus speaks. And the holy word of God slays every one of them. Jesus spoke creation in, and in this moment he speaks creation out. It is not only his holy ability, but it is his holy right and authority to do so. I want you to notice that the armies of heaven do not engage in warfare. All the armies of the Old Testament saints and the church and the great tribulation saints and the angels of heaven do not participate in this war. We're there, but this is Jesus' battle. And Jesus alone fights it and rids the world of sin and sinners. Billions and billions and billions of birds then light to the ground and gorge themselves in this supper of judgment. It is not a pretty picture, but it is the Bible's picture of God dealing, repaying sin. Sin is ugly before God, and its repayment is ugly as well. You know, this chapter tells me that every human being on every continent on, in every age are going to feel one of two pinnacles of emotion. In the presence of Jesus, we are either going to feel the elation of being saved or the fear and condemnation of being lost. Two ends of the spectrum of emotion, but every person will be on one end or the other, depending on his or her decision for the Lord Jesus Christ. So Christians, this chapter promises you and me 
a place at the table at the marriage supper of the Lamb, a place that we're going to ride in the army of God. And though we won't be fighting in that army, we're going to be cheering on the general who's going to carry out the battle himself. You know, my mind kind of swims on overload when you try to take this passage in and what I believe we're going to see. We can only scratch the surface of what we're going to see as a child of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. But it's a wonderful passage for the saved. But it should be a scary, scary passage for the lost. And so tonight, brothers and sisters in Christ, we are to go out to claim the lost. We are to go to share the good news with them. They, they must have this good news. And you and I are the ones who are commissioned to share it. We see that happening in John chapter 14 when Jesus is telling his disciples, I'm leaving, I'm going back to heaven. However, you are going to pick up where I'm leaving off in ministry. This is now your commission. This is now your task. And that commission that he gave to those 11 disciples that we see in the upper room discourse is the same commission that you and I receive when we know and believe and follow the Lord Jesus Christ. We are to take this good news out so our family and friends and loved ones will not see Hades and hell and lostness for eternity. We're called with that commission, and I pray we will take it seriously. You know, every Sunday, when I look around, this is a sizable sanctuary, praise God, but there are still empty seats here. And while I'm grateful for the 80% of the seats that are filled, there's still 20%. There's somebody in your life who needs to fill these seats. Somebody in my life as well. That this is not a point my finger at you. This is our responsibility. This is our shared task. This is our commission. When you see a lost seat, or rather when you see an empty seat, think about that lost person in your life who needs to be in that seat on that Sunday morning. It's our commission not our neighbors, ours, as sons and daughters of God. And tonight, if you are here and you've never come to Jesus as Savior, I don't know how anyone could hear this message and not want him. Now, this is not fire insurance that you're just accepting a Savior to get away from hell, but rather I want you to see the love of Jesus given by his life on the old rugged cross that you might come to him tonight so that you can see heaven and paradise and blessing and eternity with Jesus. That's what he wants for you.